recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, ChrisTheGuinea.org. Today is Friday, January 17, 2014. I have a few things to talk about before I commence with my presentation of Acts. The new website, there have been a few glitches. I've gotten around some non-fatal memory allocation errors and a few other things that had to do with caching. There were still a few minor things to clear up. I thought I had a chat room on Tuesday, but that didn't work out. That's why I moved the website, but that didn't work out. The, um, the one I thought should work actually failed. I'm going to give it another go this week. When Wednesday rolls around, I run out of time, and I have to start preparing programs rather than toying with technical issues. People with older versions of Microsoft Windows, Windows NT, Windows Vista, I, I've had a few people report problems to me navigating the new website. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do anything about that. I, I'm going to try, but I don't want to um, go backwards. I mean, the new website, the, the old Christogonia website was not Android-friendly. It looked like hell on my telephone, and, and, and it didn't look much better on my tablet. So it, it, it wasn't Android-friendly at all, and, and the, the media technology, the, the videos and, and the MP3s and the streaming radio were all reliant upon Flash. And Flash is on its way out. It, it seems that... Um, Firefox and Opera and the newer versions are moving away from it. They're moving away from plugins entirely. My Android phone and, and my tablet don't support Flash. So, so Flash is a thing of the past. I was, um, for several reasons, I had to upgrade Christogenia. Another one being that the version of the content management system that I was using what is about to become obsolete any day now. I have about 10 other websites that use that version, and they'll all be updated over the next 12 to 18 months. They're just um, not all of them are as important to me as the main site. The Mind Comp site is, of course, and, and the Saxon Messenger site, but I'll get to them as soon as I can. It's a, it's, it's the upgrade for, for various design reasons this time is a daunting task. Next time, the, the way I built the new Christogenia, I've made sure that it, it, it uh, won't be such a difficult task. That, that, that's enough of that. The, the um, websites that don't move ahead are going to be left out of the coming technology changes with browsers, and, and I just had to. That the, um, the people that own the buses make the routes, and the rest of us are just passengers. If you're having a problem with Internet Explorer, I would suggest that you try Google Chrome or Firefox or Opera. Install one of those browsers on your older computer, and I'm sure you'll have a better time of it. The Christoginian mailing list. I've had a real vexing problem these last few months. AT&T and all of the related networks, Bell South, Southwest Bell, Prodigy.net, they're all rejecting Christoginian.org email. 
That now, Christoginian.org, I've never sent out spam from that domain. I've never added people unwillingly to the Christoginian.org mailing list. That's a sign-up mailing list. You have to verify your, your, your sign-up. It, it's the way it's always been. And um, I, I've sent out some junk mail just on other domains. But, but Christoginian.org's never been a spamming domain. And AT&T has me blocked from all their networks. I suspect some tight bastards behind that one. I've been trying to get it rectified, and, and they haven't. Um, that, that they've just ignored me so far. The um, people that have those email addresses are not getting my mail, and they probably won't. If you want Christoginia.org mail and, and you're on AT&T or BellSouth.net, SouthwestBell.net, Prodigy.net, or, or there's four or five other networks, I would suggest you just sign up with the Gmail account or Yahoo account or something like that. Other changes at Christoginia, the Saxon Messenger. I haven't been able to keep up with the schedule. I'm going to try to do better next year, but just in case I can't, I'm disconnecting the issue numbers from the calendar because I don't know if I'll be able to put out 12 Saxon Messengers next year. I, I, I only put out 10 this year, and, and November just went out, and, and the December issue will be created. I have ideas of what to write for it. I just need the time. Other changes at Christogenia. The, the um, well, well, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. I'm open to article submissions from Identity Christians and, and even other people for Saxon Messenger articles. I'm looking for material that is um, pertinent to issues affecting our race today, which are from either a religiously neutral perspective or from a Christian identity perspective. This is because we shall not promote other religious perspectives, all of which are invalid. There are a lot of good articles on the race issue that are religiously neutral that we've published. Um, Lasha Darkmoon's written some good ones. This month we're even printing one from um, Clement Pulaski, a short article that's, that, that makes some good points. So... so um, and anything like that we're looking for would be a help. We're always on the look ourselves for, for pertinent, good material. It, it's not always easy to find. So much material out there on the Internet has an, a, a, a pro-Jewish bias, an anti-Christian bias, a universalist bias, and, and I try to stay away from all of it. it it's garbage. I... I, I I had hoped when I started the Saxon Messenger project three years ago that in, in PDF format it would be widely distributed, and, and many of the PDFs have had thousands and thousands of downloads, but I hope that it's a vehicle that people could pass around to um, their white kinsmen who aren't necessarily Christian identity, but but which would assist but which would assist them in, in um 
investigating and, and seeing the, the picture that we attempt to portray about what's going on in the world today. It, it's supposed to be a vehicle that hopefully makes people think, and, and that's the kind of material I like to try to publish. Enough said. The Book of Acts, Chapter 27. I have a long introduction to this one. Last week, I, I just want to say a few things off the cuff. Last week, I think the highlight um, of the Acts chapter 26 presentation was the fact that Paul expressed 27 years after the Passion of Christ that the hope and the promises in Christ were for well, well the promises made to the patriarchs and the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Saying tribes, Paul certainly was not out to replace genetic Israel with some manufactured, contrived church or, or, or some non-Israel people. That, that's absolute baloney. The faith of Abraham, as we discussed last week, as Paul illustrates in Romans chapter 4, the faith of Abraham is his belief that God is true in his promises that many nations would come from his loins, from his offspring, and that they would inherit the earth. If you're a Negro, if you're a Chinaman, if you're a mestizo squat monster, you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian because what you believe does not matter. The faith of Abraham is what Abraham believed. And if you're not a white Israelite, Abraham did not believe in you. Abraham did not believe in spooks. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is afforded the opportunity to address a rather large crowd at what Luke depicted as a rather festive gathering concerning his Christian profession. As we discussed at length while presenting that chapter, Paul did not necessarily speak for the benefit of Herod Agrippa or the other leaders of the Judeans who were Edomites and certainly not candidates for the Christian profession. Rather, Paul addressed Herod as a matter of protocol and used the occasion in order to witness to the many hundreds of others who must have been present. We pointed out that Paul himself explained his philosophy in these matters in the first chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, where he attested that those things concerning me have gone still more to the advancement of the good message, so that my bonds in Christ have become manifest to the whole praetorium, the people in the court of Caesar Nero, and to all the rest, and most of the brethren among the number of the prince trusting in my bonds venture 
more exceedingly to speak the word of Yahweh fearlessly, some indeed, even because of envy and strife, but some also, by approval, are proclaiming the Christ. Surely these out of love, knowing I, that I am set for a defense of the gospel, but those out of contention are declaring the Christ not purely supposing to stir up tribulation in my bonds. What then? That in every way, rather in pretext or in truth, Christ is declared. And in this I rejoice, and surely I will rejoice. Paul was willing to defend his Christian faith in front of everybody for the benefit of those who were its intended beneficiaries. If he could get the enemies talking about Christ, well, that was good too, because Christ was being spoken of. That's how Paul saw it. That's why he addressed Herod Agrippa and was pleased to. That's why he gave his defense at the court of Nero and was pleased to. Luke's record of Paul's defense of the faith in Acts chapter 26 most likely did not represent everything that Paul said that day, hardly. Rather, it is evident that each time such an episode is related in Scripture, only particular points are recalled by the writer. We see this style throughout the Gospels, where Christ had spoken and where his words were recorded by more than one apostle. Often one apostle recorded his words somewhat differently than the others, while all are clearly recalling the same account. One may have more or different details than the other. And having two or three accounts and compounding them, we may see a fuller picture of what Christ had said or done. In the same manner, a fuller account of Paul's actions prior to his conversion and the road to Damascus event itself is brought to light once all three of the descriptions of those things which are found in Acts are compounded. Yet, while we have only this one account of Paul's final address in Judea, we do have a comprehensive witness of his Christian profession to the Judeans, meaning, of course, the Israelites of Judea. And we have it in the epistle to the Hebrews. Here... It may be appropriate to discuss that epistle, what we've been endeavoring. My endeavor has been, through this presentation, to be to identify when Paul had actually written each of his epistles. So far, we've identified seven. This would be the eighth, and the others were all written from Rome. The popular notion is that Hebrews, well, well, where people accept it as Paul's epistle in the first place, which is crazy not to, the popular notion is that Hebrews was written from Rome. I'm going to disparage that idea tonight and hopefully disprove it. 
The main points of the epistle to the Hebrews, if I may summarize them briefly, and I won't hit on everything, I won't be able to in one paragraph, are these. That there is a new priesthood in Christ, and that priesthood gets its authority from the ancient priesthood of Melchizedek, which is the church of the firstborn in Christ. And that since Abraham himself was subservient to that priesthood, all of Israel should be subservient to Christ and not to Levi. It asserts that the new covenant promised in Jeremiah is fulfilled in Christ and is binding to the same house of Israel and house of Judah, to those 12 tribes, that the covenant, the old covenant, had also bound, and that, according to Scripture, with this new covenant, the old covenant is thereby dissolved. Therefore, the Levitical priesthood is eclipsed by a higher authority which had actually preceded it in the first place. And the rituals and the ordinances which it enforced are also eclipsed, being replaced by a new high priest, which is Christ, and a temple which is in the heavens, which is in that spirit that God had bestowed upon Adamic man from the beginning. The epistle to the Hebrews seeks to demonstrate that the faith in Christ is the same faith which the patriarchs and heroes of ancient Israel had in Yahweh God, and that faith transcends the Levitical priesthood and its ordinances and its rituals because it actually preceded them. The epistle to the Hebrews is not looking to convince the naysayers that Yahshua is the Christ. And there are no arguments in that regard. Rather, it is written to give a perspective on the Christian faith to those who have already accepted Christ. Therefore, its audience, its intended audience, are ostensibly the Adianite Christians. Also, and quite importantly, because many of the people of Israel at this time, the people in Israel claiming to be Israel, are actually Edomite bastards. A thorough, a thorough repudiation of bastards and of Esau, the ancestor of those Edomite bastards, is found towards the end of this epistle in Hebrews chapter 12. While the epistle to the Hebrews is unlike any of Paul's other letters, in content and in style, it certainly seems to be Paul's work. Yet he does not introduce himself. And there seems to have been specific reasons for that. From the last chapter of the epistle, it is evident that Paul was indeed its author. And in case anybody knows it, we must discount the interpolation. It is an interpolation of the word my found in the majority text at Hebrews 10.34. Paul is not referring to himself in that verse 
that word does not belong, please read the Christogenia version of that, of, of that verse. The last chapter of the epistle makes it evident that Paul was indeed its author. Of course, the writing itself was not Paul's, but he had others do the actual writing of his letters for him, for which we have clear examples in Romans and in Galatians. Paul has very poor eyesight and could hardly write, which is the subject of the salutation of his epistle to the Galatians, written several years before this. Ostensibly, Paul did not reveal his identity as the author at the beginning of the epistle because he was reviled by the Christians of Judea, who had disdained Paul, as the elders at Jerusalem had explained in Acts chapter 21, because he was teaching that Christians should not follow the works of the law. It is therefore evident that if Paul wanted his epistle to be distributed as a doctrinal dissertation to teach Christians why they should depart from the Levitical priesthood and the rituals and the works of the law, he would not introduce himself because he would not want his dis- because he would want his dissertation to be read. Considering all of the statements about these things in the book of Acts, the differences between Paul and James, the vacillation of Peter, and Paul's remarks concerning these differences and Peter's vacillation. In Galatians chapter 2, the epistle to the Hebrews seems to be perhaps the most perfect answer in regard to all of these things which Paul could possibly have made. In the history of Christendom, the epistle to the Hebrews certainly prevailed in practice until the Roman Catholic Church slipped back into Phariseeism and developed its own rituals, which it calls sacraments. And man simply cannot seem to escape the fallacious belief in a works-based salvation. The epistle to the Hebrews, eloquent in style, seems to have been written by Luke. From the end of the epistle, it is evident that Paul is indeed the subject of the salutation, and that he was personally familiar with the Hebrews to whom he addressed this epistle. It is unlikely at any point after his arrest that Paul would have desired to return to Jerusalem with the hostility and the many threats against his life that faced him there. But he had spoken in Hebrews chapter 13 about being restored to these Hebrews. The Hebrews at Antioch, where Paul had spent considerable time and which was the center of Christianity at the time, they are much more likely to have been the intended audience for the epistle. Here we shall read the salutation at the end from Hebrews chapter 13, from verse 18. Pray for us, for we have confidence and we have a good conscience in all things wishing to conduct ourselves well, and more exceedingly I encourage to do this, that the more quickly I would be restored to you. And Yahweh of peace, who led up the great shepherd of the sheep from among the dead, 
in the blood of the eternal covenant, our prince, Joshua, may he restore you in all good for which to do his will, making it us that which is well-pleasing before him through Joshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages. Truly, now I encourage you, brethren, uphold the word of encouragement, for in all humbleness I have written to you. You know that Timotheus, our brother, has been released, with whom, if he would come sooner, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. They from Italy greet you. Favor is with you all. Of course, Paul anticipated his own release, which never happened. There are several challenges in calculating when, to whom, and from where this epistle may have been written. Paul is in bonds, which is evident in verse 19, where he expresses the hope of being restored to the people he is addressing. Timothy was also in bonds, and here Paul announces his release. Reading verse 24, it is easy to assert that Hebrews was written from Rome. It's the lazy man's way out. But it is not necessarily true. Where Paul explicitly says, they from Italy in his epistle to the Hebrews, he does not by necessity mean to refer to people who are in Italy. While popular wisdom has it that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews from Italy and sent it to them with the just release Timothy, I would not be so quick to agree. Rather, it is evident that the epistle to the Hebrews was written from Caesarea before Paul went to Rome. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 4, it is evident that several people are accompanying Paul on his way to Jerusalem. The very trip which would lead to his arrest. Among those people are Timothy, Aristarchus, the Macedonian, and Trophimus, the Ephesian. Much later, writing Timothy from Rome, Paul recounts all of those people associated with his ministry and that he had left Trophimus behind in Miletus since he was sick. It seems that Paul wrote that, although Timothy certainly should have known it, and we've commented on this earlier in our presentation of Acts, because the epistle being to Timothy was nevertheless written for a wider audience than Timothy alone. Ostensibly, Paul wanted to record the history of all those people who were with him throughout the book of Acts, or at least a great number of them. Timothy was with Paul in Rome, and he is mentioned in three letters which Paul wrote from Rome. Those are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. But there is no explicit indication from Paul that Timothy was actually a prisoner with him in Rome while he was writing those letters. And certain sentences are worded in a manner which indicates otherwise, such as the opening to the epistle to Philemon. The language in Philippians, 
chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, shows that Timothy was a free man, although he was in Paul's company in Rome when Paul wrote that epistle. Paul, staying in his own hired house while he was in bonds in Rome, according to Luke in Acts chapter 28, Timothy must have only been visiting him when he wrote those epistles, and this is made manifest when we inspect them. When we compare 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 12, with Colossians 4.10, it is evident that 2 Timothy was written before Colossians. While writing Colossians, Timothy, as we see in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark and Luke, as we see in chapter 4, verses 10 and 14, were all with Paul in Rome. Writing to Timothy, Paul had asked Timothy to come to him in Rome and to bring Mark along with him. From the King James Version, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, in part, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Damas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, the cloak that I left at Troy. And let me say that the letter to the Ephesians was already written, right? The cloak that I have left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee. And the books, but especially the parchments. Now, Damas is also mentioned with Paul later, even though in 2 Timothy, Paul says that Damas had forsaken him. It's possible that Damas returned. When Paul wrote Colossians and all of these men are together, as Paul had asked in 2 Timothy, we see that Timothy was not his fellow prisoner. Aristarchus was. If Timothy was a free man when Paul wrote his epistles from Rome, then Timothy was released from being a prisoner before Paul got to Rome. And that is why Paul is writing Timothy to come to him while he is in Rome and before he wrote those epistles. This is more evident in, in this next chapter of Acts. Here in Acts chapter 27, with Paul in bonds and boarding a ship for Rome, Luke, who is also with him, mentions that they are accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. This must be that same Aristarchus who accompanied Paul to Jerusalem with Timothy and the others who were with him in Acts chapter 20 as Paul is en route to Jerusalem. Yet if Timothy were in bonds with Paul when he is sent to Rome, it seems odd that Luke does not mention Timothy here, but that he does mention Aristarchus. In Colossians, written later from Rome, Paul mentions that Timothy is with him, 
And we see in 2 Timothy that Timothy was a free man who then came to be with him as Paul requested. Then in a salutation at the end of the epistle, Paul again mentions Aristarchus and explicitly calls Aristarchus his fellow prisoner. Luke, Mark, and others are also mentioned, but they are not called fellow prisoners with Paul even though that's possible of Luke, and we'll discuss that a bit later. Timothy had come to Rome to see Paul, and he brought Mark with him. We know of none of the details which relate to why Aristarchus is being sent to Rome along with Paul here, which we see in verse 2 of chapter 27. But Aristarchus is still in bonds with Paul when he wrote the epistle to the Colossians sometime later. And Timothy wasn't. Was Aristarchus also a Roman citizen? Did Aristarchus also appeal to Caesar? That appears to be the only circumstance which fits his predicament. It is evident throughout his writing, that Luke generally only followed the central character in the narrative, which was indeed Paul. However, Aristarchus being a prisoner here, if Timothy is not here, and if he was not a prisoner with Paul in Rome, then he may have also been arrested with Paul in Jerusalem, but released from his bonds while they were still in Caesarea. If this is true, we must consider that the epistle to the Hebrews was written while Paul was in bonds in Caesarea. And that the reference to the Italians is a reference to some visitors from Italy. That word is apo. It means separation from. These people had come from Italy to see Paul, or perhaps to go to Jerusalem for some feast in this two-year period that Paul's under arrest in Caesarea and stopped to see Paul on the way. While Paul had not yet been to Italy before this time, he did know Christians who had resided in Rome previously, such as Priscilla and Aquila, for instance. In any event, the conventional wisdom is wrong once again. The epistle to the Hebrews, written here in Caesarea, is therefore the eighth of Paul's surviving epistles, since he had actually written more than those which we now have. If Timothy is with Paul in bonds here, it's very odd that Luke only mentioned Aristarchus in their company, and that Timothy was a free man when Paul wrote to Timothy, asking him to come to him and to bring Mark, and that they're all together when Paul wrote Colossians. It must be that Timothy was released from prison in Caesarea. Paul and Aristarchus were sent to Rome as prisoners, 
Paul later writes Timothy, asking him to come to him, bring him some books, some parchments, and bring Mark. And then when Timothy gets there, Paul writes Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon while Timothy is there and mentions Timothy and Mark in those epistles. That is perfectly sensible. I need to drink. With this, we will commence with Acts chapter 27. From verse 1. And as it was decided for us to sail off to Italy, they turned Paul and some other prisoners over to a centurion named Julius, or Julius, of the cohort of Sebastus. This word Sebastus is the Greek equivalent of Augustus. It is a reference to Nero Caesar. Julius, being a centurion of the cohort of Sebastus, or as the King James Version has it, of Augustus's band. Julius was ostensibly a member of the Imperial Guard. Some commentators imagine that Luke is referring to Caesarea itself, where he says Sebastus here, and imagine it to be a reference to Caesarea. However, that is not how Luke used the term. Twice towards the end of Acts chapter 25, where it is also a reference to Nero, that's how Luke used the term. The city, Caesarea, was named in honor of Octavian. It was known as Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea Palestinae, and Sebastus, which is also a title of the emperor, was only the name of its harbor, but it was the name of the harbor and not a reference to the city. Julius was a member of the imperial guard. The rest of Acts chapter 27 contains mostly a description of the journey which Luke and Paul had made to Rome, a journey which would take many months to complete. Ostensibly, because of what must have been some earlier than expected onset of winter weather. At the end of Acts 27, the journey is not even yet finished, and it runs into chapter 28. On the surface of his writing, it seems that Luke was fascinated with travel, since his travels with Paul are among the most detailed portions of Acts. In truth, however, we do not know what other writings were made which may have filled in many other details, writings such as those epistles which are now lost. It is difficult to imagine that Paul, having traveled through so many cities with the gospel message for perhaps 25 years, only wrote those 14 epistles which we have, and the two which we can be certain are missing. They would be an epistle to the Laodiceans and an epistle 
to the Corinthians, the first epistle to the Corinthians, which is mentioned in what we know as 1 Corinthians 5.9. If Paul never wrote an epistle until after the event of Acts chapter 15, which occurred circa 47 AD, and it is now 59 AD, with eight of his known epistles and one of his missing epistles, the first epistle to the Corinthians, already having been written by this time, did Paul really only write an average of less than one epistle a year? That is difficult to imagine, and especially since there was no television in those days. Verse 2, and boarding into a ship of Adramulios, being about to sail to places throughout Asia, we set sail. And there being with us Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. As to that word, Adramudios, the codices Vaticanus and Alexandrinus have Adramuntios, a name which was, does not which doesn't seem to describe any place known to have existed. Adramudios, or Adramidium, as it's commonly written, because it comes from the Latin and not the Greek, but the English translations are after the manner of Latin and not Greek, I should say. Adramudios was a city near Mount Ida in ancient Troy, ancient Troy, just south of the Troad. And according to Strabo, it was a city colonized by the Athenians, which has both a harbor and a naval station. This ship must have been from there and was probably headed there. The centurion must have planned ahead on a connection with another ship at one of the stopping points in order to get to Rome. The reference to Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, is a reference to Paul's traveling companion. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 19 when he was seized by the crowd at Ephesus. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 20 verse 4 as being in Paul's company on this trip to Jerusalem. He's mentioned later by Paul as his fellow worker in Philemon chapter 24. He's also mentioned later by Paul as his fellow prisoner in Christ at Colossians 4.10. Luke's mention of him here is revealing since we see that Paul was not arrested alone. However, this is the first and only explicit mention in Acts of anyone having been arrested along with Paul, since throughout the narrative, Luke focuses only on the central character. While Luke and Paul and Aristarchus are together for quite some time, Luke's writing style in this regard is also very impersonal. Verse 3, and on the next day, 
we landed in Sidon. And Julius, treating Paul in a friendly manner, permitted him going to his friends to obtain care. In earlier chapters of Acts, we considered the harsh penalty, perhaps even death, which man in authority had to face for the loss of a prisoner. This was seen in Acts chapter 12, where Peter escaped the guards of Herod. And again, in Acts chapter 16, where the jailer in Philippi almost slew himself rather than face the consequences imagining his prisoners to have escaped after an earthquake over which he had no control. He still would have killed himself if his prisoners escaped. Here we see this Julius must have been a man of great faith since he allows Paul, a prisoner, such freedom in spite of the possible penalties he could face if Paul had chosen to escape. Verse 4, And setting sail from there, we sailed beneath Cyprus on account of there being opposing winds, or literally on account of the winds being opposing. And sailing through the sea by Calicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra of Lycia, just sailing along the southern coast of Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, if I have to use the word. Roman merchant vessels typically had one large sail, and depending on their size, perhaps a second smaller sail on the bow, which was also used for steering. They had rudders, but no oars, so they were at the mercy of the wind. This vessel, probably accepting or discharging freight and passengers at each port it stopped in, would have sailed along the coasts since it's obviously stopping in many ports. The common smaller Roman merchant vessels, engaged mostly in the grain trade and trade in general goods, typically had a displacement of about 75 tons. Strangely, the codices Sinaiticus and Alexanders have Lystra here rather than Myra, where the Codex Vaticanus has Myra but spells it with two R's. Paul visited Lystra earlier in Acts, which is described in chapters 14 and 16. However, Lystra was in Lycaonia, and it was far inland from the coast. There was no way a boat was getting to Lystra. Strabo mentions Myra twice in his geography in his description of Lycia, where there is no mention of any other Lystra. And so the text here follows the majority text and other medieval manuscripts, which spell Myra with a single R, as the Codex Vaticanus spells it with a double R. I don't know where the Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus got Lystra. The Sinaiticus is otherwise a fairly reliable manuscript. I don't, I, this is pretty much nuts. Verse 6, And the centurion, finding there 
an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, he boarded us into it. While Luke never tells us anything about the fates of the other men who were with Paul, except his brief mention of Aristarchus here, the language that he uses reveals to us the possibility that he himself was not traveling along with Paul freely, but perhaps he too was arrested at the temple in Jerusalem. This would explain why he could provide such detailed accounts concerning many of the things which happened to Paul while he was detained, such as the exchanges between Paul and the Roman commander. If only Paul were arrested, Luke would be waiting outside in the courtyard, and he himself may become the, the, the object of the wrath of the, of the Judeans, and, and that never happened. Luke also knew in great detail the exchange between Paul and his nephew. Those exchanges are recorded in Acts chapters 22 and 23, following Paul's arrest. That Aristarchus was a prisoner along with Paul, as we've mentioned, is evidenced in Colossians in chapter 4. Yet Luke only gives him one brief mention here in Acts chapter 27. While Luke is not explicitly called a prisoner anywhere, he too is mentioned as being present in the epistle in Colossians. He never departs from Paul, so far as the narrative and the epistles tell us. He very well may have been a prisoner with Paul throughout all of this time. If he wasn't a prisoner with Paul, he had an awful lot of access to Paul the prisoner, and never left his side. If he was a prisoner with Paul, it would explain why the centurion boarded us into it, boarded us into the ship, meaning Luke and Paul, and ostensibly Aristarchus. Luke didn't say boarded them into it, and I followed along as I have been able to do for all this time. So that's something to consider. I believe, I couldn't prove it except for this, but I believe that Luke was also a prisoner. Luke, Timothy, Aristarchus were always Paul in the temple. They were all arrested. Luke's entire narrative only focuses on the central character, who is Paul, and he's a humble man and doesn't even discuss his own predicament. The Codex Sinaiticus. I'm sorry, I have to read verse 7 before I comment on it. And with considerable days, sailing slowly and hardly coming by Nidus, the wind not allowing us to approach we sailed beneath Crete by Salmone, and barely sailing by it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, which was near to a city, Lasea. The Codex Sinaiticus spells that with two S's. The Alexandrinus has Alasa, 
So I, I guess whoever the scribe was behind the Codex Alexandrinus and, and, and his forebears, they probably didn't know their geography very well. The Codex Vaticanus has Lasea with a slightly different spelling. Natus is on the tip of a long peninsula which just juts out from the southwest coast of Anatolia and sticks out far enough to be just south of the island of Kos. The exact location of Salmone is uncertain, but Fair Havens is just east of the ancient site of Lassia, a town on the southern coast of Crete. Modern maps place Fair Havens or Caloi Limines, you can find it on Google to this day, near the center of the southern coast of Crete, which comprises the southernmost part of the island. Verse 9. And passing considerable time, and already it being dangerous for the voyage, because the fast had already passed. And let me say that that reference to the fast could only intend the Day of Atonement, which occurred in late September or early October. It was considered unsafe to sail in the fall and winter months, the winds and sea being quite dangerous in the colder seasons. With this, it may also be evident that Paul most likely sailed for Rome in the same year that Festus became the procurator of Judea, which was... 59 AD. The events described in Acts chapters 25 and 26 may have easily transpired over a period of a few months. Paul would not reach Rome until the year 60. To continue verse 9 into verse 10, Paul recommended speaking to them, men, I perceive that the voyage is going to be with injury and damage not only of the freight and the ship, but even of our lives. Paul's concern here is based upon common sense. Shipwrecks in the Mediterranean were very common, especially at this time of year. Only later, recorded in verse 23, does Paul relate a vision which he had, which more clearly reveals the fate of the ship and its passengers. Verse 11, but the centurion had some degree of assault, uh, but the centurion was rather persuaded by the pilot and the ship owner than by the thing spoken by Paul. Evidently, the Roman centurion had some degree of authority over the actions of the pilot and the ship owner, who simply persuaded him to allow them to continue with the voyage. The concerns of the pilot and the ship owner would have been centered on the freight and its value, and also probably on whether they would spend the winter in the comfort of Rome or in some strange foreign port. Verse 12, and the haven being inconvenient for spending the winter, the majority voted council to set sail from there. If somehow they would be able, arriving to winter in Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, looking 
towards the southwest and towards the northwest. The directions here, southwest and northwest, are literally the names of certain winds. In these instances, lips and koros, respectively. It is difficult to determine exactly what Luke meant by the directions. Since the harbor itself, even though the location is generally known, the harbor itself and its precise location, exactly where it was in, in the gulf, where Phoenix is identified as, as having been, its precise location cannot be accurately reconstructed. Let me say that we do know where nearly all of these places are. We know where they are because they're mentioned in Strabo or Polybius or in later secular Roman writings. It's um, Phoenix is mentioned by Strabo, and, and he describes it and tells us, tells us who lived there and, and, and basically where it was. I, I mean, the, the Greeks were an educated people and they had much writing. You would not know that when you read some of the Christian commentaries on this chapter of Acts, which I spent some time doing the last couple of days. It, it's, um, I, I, I just had to investigate some things and, and most of what I found was utterly ridiculous. There's a few Bible dictionaries freely available online that I wouldn't give you 10 cents for. It, it's, some of them are pretty bad. Some of the um, supposedly academic materials that I read even debate whether Melita is Malta below Sicily. And that's really absurd. The Greeks wrote about all these places. We've had these writings. Men have cited these writings for 2,000 years. If Bible scholars read the classics to understand the Bible, they might actually be scholars. It, it's, it's, I've read some pretty absurd things just the last few days in, in checking out some of the names of some of these places. It's incredible. I'd rather stick to Strabo and Diodorus Siculus and the other classics that I generally quote and read them because the Bible dictionaries, some of them are okay, but most of them don't waste your time. Cutting Crete in half, Phoenix, which is a park and a tourist attraction today, was a port near a peninsula which juts out about midway along the western half of the island's southern coast. Being in an inlet at the western side of the peninsula, it was sheltered from the open sea. We just don't know exactly where the harbor was that Luke was referring to. Strabo mentions Phoenix in passing in the tenth book of his geography. Of course, the name Phoenix is indeed a remnant of the ancient Greek accounts of the Phoenician settlement of Europe. And there were lots of places named after Phoenix. Verse 13, 
Then with the south wind blowing gently, supposing the proposal to have prevailed, taking off, they sailed by close decree. By the phrase, supposing the proposal to have prevailed, Luke describes the hope which the crew had that their plan would be successful, that they could winter in Phoenix. But not much later, there cast against her a tempestuous wind, which is called Eurakulan, and upon the ships being seized and carried, not able to face the wind, giving up, we were borne along. Now the majority text has Eurokludan, and the text here follows the codices, which all agree, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. Thayer describes Eurokulon as simply a northeast wind, and Eurokludon as a southeast wind raising mighty waves. The word Euros is the east wind, or more exactly, the east-southeast wind. I guess you had to have a good memory to be a Greek meteorologist. Strabo discusses many of the names which the Greeks gave to the winds in his first book of his geography. But he mentions neither the Eurokulon or the Eurokludon. It may be that these winds are actually, since weather changes in different parts of the Mediterranean, it may be that the names of the winds are actually fairly regional. Verse 16, and being run below a certain island called Cauda, we were barely able to attain full control of the skiff. The King James really butchers the passage in verses 16 and 17. Which taking, which taking up, they used supports undergirding the boat which is a reference to the skiff, and fearing lest they should run aground in the Sirtis, lowering the vessel, which is another reference to the skiff, they were borne along. The word translated run aground is actually ekpipto. It literally means to fall out. In this context, meaning to fall out of the sea. So the way Greeks described things was kind of strange at times, right? The word appears in verses 26 and 29 in that same context, and in verse 32, where it is to fall away in a different context. While Liddell and Scott define Sirtis as the name of two large sandbanks, major and minor, on the coast of Libya. And the King James Version renders the word as quicksands. The Sirtis actually refers to one of two large gulfs on the coast of, of northern Africa, the Sirtis Major and the Sirtis Minor. They're well known to us from Latin writings. They are identified today as the Gulf of Sidra on the coast of modern Libya and the Gulf of Gabez on the coast of what is now called Tunisia. The Gulf of Gabez, much of that gulf is very shallow and it contains 
many hazards to shipping. The Codices, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus have Clauda rather than Cauda, and the majority text is close to them. The text here follows the Codex Vaticanus. The island is well known. The island which Luke called Cauda is in modern times Gavdus, where, where we see that the, the evolution of what we still call Greek it is, um, is great. The K be, becoming a G, the U becoming a V, and the A at the end becoming an OS. The island, Cauda, or Gavdus, it's a small island, not 13 square miles, and it's nearly 30 miles south of the coast of Crete. So we see that they really only wanted to depart from Fairhavens and go to Phoenix, which, which is maybe a quarter the length of Crete from Fair Havens along the coast, they were blown away from the coast and run below this island Cauda, which is 30 miles away, and now they're in wide open sea. The Sirtis is on the African coast, opposite Crete. The skiff. The skiff is a small boat which was on board of the larger merchant vessel. The King James translation seems to lose all of Greek's intended meaning in this regard, since they evidently did not understand the difference between the small boat, or skiff, which was mounted aboard the ship, and the ship itself. And while the ship is usually called a ployon, Strong's number 4143. In one place, it's called a naus, a different word for ship, Strong's number 3491. Here in verses 16 and 17, three different words are used which all must refer to the skiff, the small boat carried aboard the ship, which is even more evident in verses 30, 30 through 32, and, and we'll see that because verses 30 through 32 corroborate my interpretation of these words here. Those words are scaphe or skiff, ployon, which can refer to a ship or a boat. It, it's generally just a sailing vessel. And skewus, which is a vessel. And a skewus could be a vessel like a ship or a boat, or it could be a vessel like a pot or a pan. The King James Version misinterpreted the word skewis to refer to the sail rather than to the skiff. And therefore it has at the end of verse 17 that they struck sail and so were driven. Where the text here has lowering the vessel, which is a reference to the boat. Thusly, they were borne along. Verse 18, and upon our being driven violently by the storm, the next day they made a discharge of the cargo. And those words, 
of the cargo are implied. The word discharge here is from the Greek word ekbale, which is literally a throwing out or a throwing the cargo overboard in this context, according to Liddell and Scott. Therefore, the words of cargo have been added to the text of the Christogonian New Testament. I rarely have done that. The King James Version renders the words, which are literally, they made a discharge, rather metaphorically to read, they lightened the ship, which is fine in this context. It's just not very literal. Verse 19, and on a third day, by hand, they, or the majority text says we, all the other manuscripts have they, they cast out the implements of the ship, and neither the sun nor stars shining forth for many days, and no small winter storm laying upon us, all hope remaining of us being preserved was taken away. The most common medium-sized merchant vessels at the time held over 150 tons, and they could hold up to 3,000 amphora, which were those pottery models used to store wine or oil, which typically held 9 or 10 gallons each. Many larger ships were designed to hold 10,000 amphora, 450 tons displacement. Even larger vessels existed, which could hold over 500 tons. These Roman ships were no tiny boats. I don't know how many people read Acts chapter 27 and imagine perhaps a few people on a boat. This is a big ship. And, and it has many people. And, and there's later in a chapter, it tells us 276 people. And that's very, very plausible. One of the largest Roman ships excavated from under the sea was a wreck at Madrag de Giennes, which is off the southern coast of France, where a ship with an estimated displacement of 550 tons was discovered it is believed to have sunk about 75 BC. The Romans were said to have built even larger ships than that for special purposes, such as for transporting obelisks from Egypt. The obelisk, which stands today in front of the Vatican, was brought from Egypt by orders of the Emperor Caligula. A special ship was constructed for its transport. Verse 21, and being long without food, then Paul, standing in the midst of them, said, Indeed, it was necessary, O men, to have been obedient to me, not to set sail from Crete, or from Fair Havens, and to gain this injury and damage. And the things I recommend to you now be of good cheer. For there shall not be one loss of a life from among you, except of the ship. The word apobole is literally a throwing away, but it's a loss here. Luke seems to be making a play on words, since he used the word 
quality to describe the discharge or loss of the freight, he is using the related word, apobale, to describe the loss of the life. This is actually a writing style that Luke frequently employed in his accounts, even if the words are false. Here, more con- or the words are attributed to Paul. Here, more confidently asserting himself because he had a clear vision from God. Paul is virtually commanding that those in authority now accept his counsel, warning that their initial rejection of him led to the present dire circumstances. Verse 23. For there stood by me in this night from God, whose I am, whom I also serve, a messenger saying, Do not fear, Paul. It is necessary for you to stand before Caesar. And behold, Yahweh has granted to you all those sailing with you. On which account you be of good cheer, man. For I believe in God, that thusly it shall be according to which manner he has spoken to me. Now, into a certain island it is necessary for us to run aground. Paul had a vision of what was to come, but he didn't know exactly which island it was where they would be run aground. He was assured that he would indeed reach Rome, and he was also assured that through this display of providence, the men on the ship would be brought to the gospel of Christ. This is a model lesson that we should look for the strengthening strengthening of faith in, in the disasters of our lives, and not necessarily the strengthening of our own faith, but that we can find ways to strengthen the faith of others by our example. Yet there is one more thing to note here. Paul had already had assurances that he would see Rome, which were mentioned several times before this voyage began. Therefore, it seems that where Luke had written that all hope remaining of us being preserved was taken away, he included himself and his companions in that assessment. And even Paul himself may have needed a reinsurance from Yahweh that his mission would indeed be completed. Verse 27. Then as the fourteenth night about being carried about in the Adriatic came, about the middle of the night the sailors suspected some land to be drawn near to them. The land is drawn near to the men in the ship. That's the perspective which Luke used. We would rather think that the ship was drawn near to the land, but that's not the language that Luke used. The Adriatic Sea, as it was pictured by Luke, included the Ionian Gulf, or what is known today as the Ionian Gulf. And as much of the Mediterranean which stretched to Sicily, this is verified in the pages of Strabo's geography, where he also called this the Adriatic Sea. But Strabo identified what we now consider to be the Adriatic Sea as the Adriatic 
gulf, and the words are different. A compass is a gulf. According to Sir William Smith's Dictionary of Greek and Roman Geography, Volume 1, pages 27 and 28, Ptolemy also made these same identifications. So what Luke is saying is in line with the geographers of his world. Strabo lived until 25 AD, and right now it's 59 AD. Strabo wrote in part, quoting from Geography Book 2, Chapter 5, but the Ionian Gulf is a part of what is now called the Adriatic Sea. And Strabo said later on in that same book that the Adriatic Sea was one of the seas which made Italy a peninsula. So he was counting much more today or much more at that time than what we consider to be the Adriatic Sea today. The Adriatic Sea stretched all the way to Sicily and to Malta, where they're going to end up. Verse 28, And casting a weighted line, they found it 20 fathoms, but going a distance and casting it again, they found it 15 fathoms. The word, bolizo, the verb, is to heave the lead, to take soundings, to measure the depth of the water. So I've opted for a more descriptive rendering, to cast a weighted line, which fits the context. It's what they were doing. Later in the verse, casting, where the same verb appears again, I did not repeat the words, a weighted line. I shouldn't have had to. A fathom is about six feet, which is the approximate meaning of the Greek word, which it is used to translate here, or guia, number thir- Strong's number 3712. 20 fathoms is indeed shallow in the Mediterranean, which, according to the 2005 World Almanac, has an average depth of 4,926 feet, which is 821 fathoms. Verse 29, and fearing lest somehow we should run aground upon rough places, casting four anchors from the stern, They prayed for the day to arrive. And upon the sailors seeking to flee from the ship and lowering the skiff into the sea with the pretense as if from the bow they were going to extend anchors. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, if they do not remain in the ship, you shall not be able to be preserved. Then the soldiers cut loose the ropes of the skiff and allowed it to fall away. Here we see the contextual corroboration for the Christogonia translation of verses 16 and 17, where it was a skiff, a small boat, carried on this larger ship which is being described. We also see that the skiff being mounted on the bow of the ship informs us 
that this was perhaps a ship with only one main sail and not with the foresail on the bow, unless both implements could somehow be affixed. I can't envision that for myself. Several of the sailors, wanting to escape danger, thought to use this skiff because land was believed to be nearby. They wanted to abandon the ship and get to that land. On Paul's exhortation, the soldiers foiled their plan, releasing the empty skiff into the water. The King James Version actually translated these verses 29 through 32 much better than it did in verses 16 and 17. Verse 33, And until when day was about to come, Paul encouraged all to take food, saying, Today is 14 days you have continued waiting without food, taking nothing, on which account I encourage you to partake of food. Indeed, this is for your preservation, for from not one of you shall a hair of the head be lost. The, mass, the majority text has fall. And saying these things and taking wheat bread, he gave thanks to Yahweh before all, and breaking it, he began to eat, and all being made cheerful, then took food themselves. And here, I believe, is an example of a true Christian communion. While the word itself was not used, Paul encourages the men to partake of sustenance together and does so giving thanks to God. Verse 37. And we were, all the souls in the ship, 276. And being filled with food, they lightened the ship, casting out the grain into the sea. Evidently, the grain was the last thing to go. The Codex Alexandrinus has 275 men. The Codex Vaticanus has only about 76 men wanting the 200. We have already discussed the large size of Roman merchant vessels and that such medium-sized vessels, which were quite common, held in excess of 150 tons. Since 300 men do not weigh 30 tons, it is entirely plausible that such a large vessel was being described here, and especially since it also boarded a skiff, and that it held 276 men, plus a great deal of freight. Verse 39. Then when day came, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a certain bay having a beach onto which they determined if they should be able to drive out the ship, meaning to drive the ship out of the sea. The codices Vaticanus and Ephraim Siri have to preserve the ship. The difference is in two sound-alike words. Verse 40. And stripping off the anchors, letting them into the sea, while letting go the yokes of the rudder and raising the foresail for the blowing wind, they pressed for the beach. 
the lighter the ship was, the higher it would sit in the water, and the closer it would make it to dry land. The size of the ship is again attested here. In the, in, in the, um, well, well, the fact that the ship didn't make it to dry land and the great effort of the sailors to get as close to dry land as possible. Of course, a very large ship would not be able to get all the way to the shore. And falling towards a place between two seas, they ran the ship ashore. And while the bow being fixed firmly remained unwavering, yet the stern was broken up by the force. And the majority text in the Codex Ephraim Siri interpolate the words of the waves. the place between two seas may have been the southern tip of the island of Malta, which is where they're going to end up, where the Adriatic Sea ends. And I think it's the Ausonian Sea, they called it, begins. That Greek word peripipto means literally to fall around, where here it's simply to fall because it's accompanied with another verb, epikello, which means to run aground or to run ashore. Verse 42, and there was a plan by the soldiers that they should slay the prisoners, lest any swimming away would escape. So we, he, we see here that the soldiers would rather account for the death of the prisoners than face the penalty themselves if they did escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, prevented them from the plan and ordered those who were able to swim to be thrown off first to get to land. And the rest, while some were upon planks, Yet others were upon things from the ship, and thusly it came to pass that all arrived safe upon land. So again, we see this must have been a very large ship. The centurion must have been a somewhat devout man and had great faith in Paul, as we have seen from the very beginning of this account, ostensibly, the next several months would be afforded to the conversion, to the conversion of the soldiers and the others as they are forced to winter on Malta. We see that their conversion was related to Paul in the vision that he had, which was described at verse 24. This concludes a presentation of Acts chapter 27, and I think this was the 33rd installment of the series of Acts. We will bring it to an end next week with Acts chapter 28. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. We will be presenting more material from Martin Luther. Martin Luther and Jews 
part two. Good night.